If you're looking for a show about everyday black dreamers and doers, you've come to the right place. Join me on a quest to find ordinary people doing extraordinary things, reinterpreting the rules of the game in order to achieve life on their own terms. I'm your host, Moses Tillman Young, and welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. In this episode, I interview Bobby Robinson. He is a lawyer with expertise in business law, mergers and acquisitions, and intellectual property, as well as creating, scaling, and having a successful tech exit to a venture capital fund. In this conversation, Bobby and I discuss the importance of understanding one's why when pursuing a career or entrepreneurial adventure, ensuring that the problem being solved is scalable and relevant. The rapid advancements in AI and how they are reshaping the legal industry, especially with platforms like LegalZoom and other tech platforms. The intricacies of intellectual property protection, emphasizing the importance of understanding different forms of IP rights and the challenges posed by new technologies. So tune in, grab some pen and paper, and get ready for this episode of Black Hole Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Black Hole Podcast. Today with me, I have Bobby Robinson. He is in an attorney and a specifically in the in the trademark and copyright space and he has heavily drawn his inspiration from outliers from Malcolm Gladwell in terms of the way that he has executed on, on his goals and his dreams and he has had the rich tapestry of different experiences ranging from the private sector to the public sector so Bobby, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Moses, thank you so much, and I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Well, first of all, how come Outliers? Why did that stand out to you as a, a book that you'd want to really focus on understanding and actually try to live it out? Why that book from Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah, so so I've I've found myself in a number of scenarios, and I'm sure my story is not all that unique. But from the perspective of um, there are not many black attorneys; less than five percent of attorneys in the U.S. are are black. Not many tech founders are African American that have sold companies and and have built companies. And for example, I was the youngest black partner at a top tier Southern firm of over 300 lawyers. So oftentimes I've always felt like I was the outlier and I wear that pretty well, right? I've always just picked, you know, so, so that's why I identify with that book so much. It's a phenomenal book. If, if your listening audience haven't, haven't read it yet, it's just one of those must reads in terms of differentiation, 
stepping out, kind of owning your story, things of that nature. And that's just something I, I holistically embody. So I, I wear my outlier badge pretty, pretty happily. Well, I mean, you said you were the youngest black person in, in a law firm, in a, in a Southern law firm. How have, have there been any instances where that was an advantage either to the firm or to a particular client that you were just, you being you was the thing that helped solve the issue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about business and consumer behavior and you think about just the trend of where we are with TikTok and just general consumer behavior around apparel or other elements of culture is primarily driven by innovative younger generations. And that firm was, it was old. The, the, the partners, most of the partners saw, and I could have been their, you know, their children or even in some cases, their grandkids, right? And so they were struggling with innovation and the legal industry is rapidly changing because their platforms like, you know, LegalZoom and other sorts of technology platforms. And then there's in our industry, there's what we know as alternative legal services that are being offered by like big accounting firms, like, you know, Arsene Young and, and all of these other tax firms and things of that nature. So law firms are really, really struggling about how to stay competitive. And one of the ways that they do it is just go out and get younger talent. And that's what they did when, when it came to me. Before I joined that firm, I had my own law firm, the Robinson Law Group. And so we were a boutique mergers and acquisition business law firm. And we did some trademarks and, and all of that. And we represented, you know, athletes, entertainers, creative entrepreneurs. We had some large corporations as well. And so they saw that what I built from the ground up and, and they heavily recruited me and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So how were you able to, I guess, go from being the person in charge to then working into a new firm? And also, did you have anybody to help walk you through the, the, the ropes in terms of being a, a lawyer and working at a firm and like all that thing. Did you have a, a mentor to help you out? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So I'll, I'll step back to the first question. It was a struggle, man. It was a struggle, you know, transitioning from my own firm into a new culture. And, the, and here's the interesting thing. I joined the firm at the height of the pandemic. So, you know, they had recruited me. We intentionally delayed when I would start because I had to wind down an, an entire operation. I had three offices, I had other lawyers, paralegals and clients. And it was, it was a lot of stuff to, to try to transition. And so I started there April of, of 2020. And at that time, everyone was starting to work from home and I didn't really have a sense of belonging. In, in my office at the time, I was the second black person in our Charlotte office. There was a, a female associate in that office and that's excluding, you know, support staff. And those typically tend to be predominantly minority. And so, so that was a struggle because no one was in the office. It was just me and a few other folks. So I didn't really get a chance to assimilate into the culture very well. There were a couple of folks, other partners and other folks who 
helped recruit me there that, you know, everyone says, Hey, if you need anything, give me a call. Right. But they're in other offices and it was very tough for me to really get acclimated initially. But ultimately it, it took me, man, over a year to really get used to it. And so I did have some, some peers at other law firms that I called because I'm going to be honest with you. I never thought I was going to do like big law. It, it's a different animal. And quite frankly, uh, I didn't think I, w I wanted that type of lifestyle where you basically had to bill all these hours and you were working all around the clock and you had no real quality of life, even if they paid you very well. But that wasn't the case with this fire. So that's why I was able to try to make it work. But it did take some adjustments. And then I had some, some folks on the inside that were helpful to, to my transition. Hmm. Do you think that maybe since you joined, you said at the height of the pandemic, that maybe they were maybe shifting towards more of a work from home kind of style instead of it being more in the office, as you said, you have, you have your hours and you need to build your clients and, and that kind of thing. Do you think that they were more relaxed about that because of the pandemic? Or do you think it's just changing tides need to? I think so. I think it's the latter because most traditional firms, they do not like work from home. <laughs> they are like, they, they, you know, they preach a camaraderie and all of the things, right. As to why you should be in the office. But if we're going to keep it a hundred, man, minorities struggle in these law firm settings. Because how law firms work is partners bring in the work and then they feed the associates the work, right? That's, that's how it works. And typically partners that look like their associates tend to get the work and those that don't, don't get the work. And so it's very important that A, you have representation in the firm, such as myself, to where they call me the quarterback. I bring in a lot of work and I farm it out predominantly to African-American and, and people of color, right? I, I, I don't make any qualms about that because I know when things got really, really slow, the black and brown associates were, they didn't have a lot of work to do, but everyone else kept saying, Hey, we're so busy. We're so busy. We're so busy. But then you look across the hall, the other black and brown associates, they're not so busy. And then it reflects poorly on them, on their performance review and things of that nature. And so. It can be quite tough in those environments if you're not connected to the right partners and other people in the firm. That, that's an in interesting observation. It's really nice that you're able to to do that and to be in a position where you could be able to help others that you saw were in need and required that little bit extra kind of thing. It's, just give me something to do. Like I'm here. I'm I'm in the office. Yeah, that's right. Let me do something. That's right. Yeah. And that's why I encourage for any potential lawyers that are thinking about going to law school or in law school and thinking about going to work at a firm or even starting your own firm. I always encourage folks, Moses, to learn how to develop your own book of business. I don't care what level you're at. As long as you're able to develop your own book of business, you're never at the mercy of another partner. Right. You're never at the mercy of anyone else giving you work. Why? Because you know how to go out and get it on your own. Right. 
And so I, I, I coach and I train lawyers and other entrepreneurs on how to do this in a way that makes the most sense. But that's always my advice to younger lawyers or lawyers thinking about going into law firms. Figure out how to build your own book of business, even if it's a small book, it's yours nonetheless. But just, just keep building. And so for, for that, that's figure out how to get your clients, how to maintain them, how to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How to go get your own clients because a lot of folks don't realize this in law school, they teach us how to be fantastic lawyers, but they don't teach us how to, you know, I, I I don't say us, but I I had my MBA before my law degree. So I, I was pretty savvy from a business perspective before I went in, but they don't teach business savviness or they don't teach how to develop business or anything of that nature. So some of those skill sets, you're going to have to personally develop them or go to a firm that, that will develop those skills for you. So you said that you were involved in the, in the tech industry and that you were able to, to sell your company. What was the company that you started and, and then were able to, to sell? Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that story? Yeah. Yeah. So the name of the company is IntelliDoc and it's a contract and workflow automation tool. So what we did was, we, so as a little backstory, the reason I created the company, as you've heard, I'm a transactional lawyer. That basically means I do a lot of contract drafting, review, negotiations. And the two things most contract lawyers tend to spend the most time on is drafting contracts and reviewing contracts. And so I didn't see at the time when I was running my firm, this was back in 2017, 2016, 2017, uh, most of the contract solutions on the marketplace were for big business. I didn't really see anything on the marketplace for small to middle-sized companies. And so I decided to build it. And that's what we did. So we sold it to, when I say sold it, we licensed the technology to corporate legal departments and most of them had small legal teams one two lawyers maybe three but they were all really really busy and so and in 2020 actually sold 60 percent of the company to a local vc fund here in the charlotte area so i still own 40 percent, and we are still thriving and working through that company so, I mean, it's very, very in, in a way, it, it's very you in terms of the yeah. <laughs> outlier perspective. Yeah. And it's that you were able to utilize the skills that you had as an attorney. You found this, this issue here in terms of this work is done in this way and it's really kind of slow and tedious. And so we need to find a way to liven it up a little bit. And so you're able to use that, apply that to that work and then create a tool that other, others can use to make it much more easier and do it more efficiently. Absolutely. And man, I'm going to be honest. A lot of people were like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Aren't you going to work yourself out of a job? And I'm like, I don't really care. Right. It, when you think about, again, mother, to your point outlier, I, I was, a, I'm a business guy before I'm a lawyer. I'm always thinking about how do I solve a problem? What do I do? And to be honest with you, man, I'm, I don't have an engineering background. 
I didn't know the first thing about building a tech company. I knew how to build a business and I didn't know how to build a tech company. And so I had to find engineers, I had to learn the language, I had to find what go to market and how to write user stories and wireframes. And now I've got, I got it down pat now, right? But, but initially it was a struggle. And that's the one thing about me is I'm always willing to take a risk, man. I'm always willing to figure it out. And I learned a lot. I, some people say I got really lucky in that I sold that company with less than two years of, of launching it because that doesn't always happen. And it was my first one. And so that could be a little disillusion, right? Like, oh my gosh, like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I really didn't, to be honest with you. I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I probably overspent on building the thing probably overspent on marketing. I probably overspent on a bunch of stuff, but now I'm building another tech company and I've, I've learned from that. Right. And so, so yeah, to your point, it, it, it was a unique learning experience, but I, I leveraged my own background and I solved the problem for my colleagues and you know, it's, it's just going to get better. It, it is going to get better. And especially with AI in terms of AI tools and new kinds Absolutely. of features and things coming out like that. Can you talk a little bit about AI? I know that in terms of being an attorney, especially in trademark and in copyright, I was wondering if you had any um, insight or any, any thoughts on yeah. Using ChatGPT and when can you use it for legal purposes and stuff like that. Because I've heard there have been a couple of cases where different, I guess, or people have been caught using it for, for legal purposes and it's a little bit sketch. So could you, for the listeners, can yeah. you just flesh that out a little bit? How to use it, when to use it, if you can, kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic question. So one thing you'll always notice is that technology is typically 10 to 15 years ahead of the legal standards, right? Generally, you, you, we see this in the sort of Bitcoin space or cryptocurrency space, where it's like the government has to put together a commission to understand it, how to figure out what it means and all this stuff. And then later on, they'll try to figure out how to legislate it, right? Because it, it's just too, too far along. The same is true with AI. You saw all the AI leaders of companies kind of go before Congress and have conversations and try to explain what chat GPT is and, and all of these things. It's going to take a really long time for any sort of regulatory measure to get behind it. That being said, you're kind of left with the, the laws that we currently have, which didn't sort of contemplate AI at the time they were written. Right. So it's a very interesting time. And that's probably why you haven't really seen a lot of case law around it because they're trying to fit like a, what do they say, a round peg into a square object. Right. And so there are some legal concerns with, for example, using AI tools to generate trademark logos or something. Right. So as a trademark lawyer, I work with a lot of brands and companies to trademark their logos, their name as it relates to products and services or whether it's a coach or whether it's a, a company that has a merch line, apparel line. And sometimes they'll use these AI tools just to help sort of kickstart creativity, right? Like I need a logo or 
And so the, the question then becomes who owns that, that contract? Because you didn't create it yourself. It was created by some code that was designed by some other engineer. And so this is when we really just have to look at the terms and use and conditions on those websites that they're using just to determine who owns the rights to it. Because a lot of times those things just give you a license to use it, right? And I don't know if you know anything about licenses. It's just like your driver's license. It can be taken away, right? You know, your license can be revoked. Same is true with any type of IP license, whether it be trademark or copyright, it can be taken away. That person, whoever created it, can take it away. So it's really important to know if you're going to use those sites. And I think those sites have a, have a place and, and helping sort of get to a, another phase of, of creativity. Just understand kind of what you're signing up for when you do use those sites and whether you can actually bring that logo to a trademark lawyer such as myself to say, hey, can you trademark it? Because I'm going to ask the question, like, who designed it? Where do you get it from? And if you tell me one of these other sites, now I have to go look at their terms and conditions to see if you could even do it. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's really interesting in terms of even graphic design, if you had to make a logo using pre-made shapes, like a circle, a square, a triangle, and you, and you were to arrange it in such a way that it made a letter or a certain symbol, then how can that be okay, but then using ChatGPT or MidJourney to create some image similar to that is is a little bit in the, on the on the line in the gray area there. Yeah. So so one is ChatGPT computer computer generated, right? So system generated, opposed to a gra a human sort of designing it and and implementing a form of creative what we just call ingenuity, right? You saw something, you envisioned it, you sort of sketched it out, right? Opposed to a computer who's probably just looking at a bunch of different images and just kind of spit it out, right? So there was, so, so copyright protects the creative expression. So if me as a creative, that logo is a creative expression that is very original to me, no computer or no other human can produce it the way that I have produced it then that certainly is eligible to be copywritten, right? And so that's, that's, the line gets a little bit clearer when we start thinking about who was the creator of it. Was it a human being that just kind of sat and did it opposed to a computer that you served it up something or you gave it kind of an idea of what you want and then it just kind of generated it for you? So, so that, that's a difference. Hmm. And so, it, as you said, one thing requires human, a person's hands to be put into the process to make the thing. All the other, That's it right. draws and, and, and from previous sources and other things that already possibly could be or possibly not copyrighted That's in right. some way, shape, or form. And so it's drawing on those. And so it's because it's drawing on possibly copyrighted material, then in that case, you'd be put in jeopardy in terms of utilizing it. Possibly. Yeah. And that's where these weird sort of legal standards are going to come into play. Right. And, and so I think the area that we're going to see this the most, we've already talked about graphic design because where the content consumption is 
crazy, right? But the other area that I think we're going to see a lot of challenges with regards to AI is going to be music. I think music and production and beats and all of those things, I think are going to pose a tremendous challenge to the courts on who owns it, what parts of it's eligible, who had permission. So it's going to be really, really fascinating to see. And it's hard for any lawyer at this moment in time, no matter how experienced they are to give an opinion about it, because there hasn't been enough case law for us to really make a decision, but it's going to be really interesting. I think once those, those things converge together, which they already are. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading, I think it was a recent article on that Universal Studios was able to pull all of the Drake AI songs that are out there now, because for some of them, they have the rights to 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 him and to 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 his work and so they're able to to pull all those down. And so in that case, I also heard that studios would be possibly this is mainly I think I heard about it for Disney, using actors, yeah. likenesses and, and, and voices in order to create more more films and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in that space, and that also goes to the writer's strike and this oh whole gosh. thing yeah. that we're going through right now, yeah. um, how, how in, in that way, do you think that there's a way that people can use AI creatively without knowingly or unknowingly using stuff that is already trademarked or copyrighted? Is there a way that they can do it without harming an original creator? Yeah, I I think so. You know, I I certainly think, for example, if you're using it for research or just to kind of, let's just say for the lack of a better word, it's kind of unclog the sort of creator's block, right? To sort of get the creative juices flowing and then you kind of go off and then sort of start creating and, and the overwhelming majority of what you've created is original content, because there are certain things in that, what we call the public domain, that's, that's part of the public domain to allow us to create, right? So, so that way, no one, and that's more of a public policy thing. You'll, you'll hear courts say, if, if we allowed everyone to copyright and trademark everything, then we, we squeeze everyone's ability to be creative, right? I mean, you think about, again, going back to music and entertainment, there's a lot of sampling. There's a lot of genre collections and cross collaborations and one generation gets inspiration from another generation. But just imagine if, if all of that was sort of off limits, everything would sort of have to be original. And, you know, we're creative human beings, but then I think we, we get more inspired by what other humans have created and done. Yeah. And even stuff in the public domain in terms of figuring out, the, I think the most recent largest intellectual property to come into the public domain was Winnie the Pooh. I think it came in, yeah, yeah, yeah like last year or so. And so that was the most recent, yeah. like the largest one that just came in. And so like a lot of things I've been doing with that, but. For the most part, um, and, and Mickey and Mickey Mouse is about to be, which is interesting. Yeah, which is very interesting because you know, while and that kind of 
Moses, to your point kind of brings us to a broader point because, you know, intellectual property is majority of my practice and IP, there are like five forms of intellectual property and just, so there's patents, right? Which protects inventions and patents last generally about 20 years. So you'll see in the, in a pharmaceutical medical space, the moment that 20 years in a day happens, you'll see a lot of what we call generic drugs take the market, right? Because now that drug is no longer patentable, right? It's, it's now in the public domain and anybody can kind of do it. The other one is copyrights. We've spoken about copyrights and it, that's for my songwriters, authors, you know, my, my coaches with curriculums, those, those sorts of things kind of fall on the copyright. And then you have trademarks or what we call your source identifiers, right? Your, your logos, your slogans, things of that nature. You hit on something earlier about image, um, what we call right of publicity. So that's your name, image, and likeness. So I do a lot of work in the NIL space with college athletes. And that's a form of IP. The biggest NIL case was with Dana White. Some, I think it was Wills of Fortune, one of those game shows. And someone tried to use her likeness and that was a huge, huge case. And generally people can't use your likeness without compensation. That's why athletes are now able to get paid because for years they weren't able to use their own likeness. And then the other one is a trade secret. The trade secrets, the most famous ones are the Coca-Cola recipe or the KFC recipe. These are things that if that they're valuable confidential information that if they got into the hands of your comp competitors, it would put you at a competitive disadvantage. And so trade secrets are very important. So those are the five different forms of IP. And you can have more than one type in one product or service, right? So, so I have a lot of clients who may have a coaching program uh, and they'll trademark the name of the, the coaching program, but they'll copyright the content of the program, such as the, the modules, the training modules, the workbooks and things of that nature. So, so it's important to at least understand what you have because you may have more than one thing. And that's the challenge I see a lot. And we were having a conversation the other day is that the, the challenge I see a lot with entrepreneurs is they just don't know what they have. And, the, and, you know, some IP concepts can be foreign to them. And that's why I enjoy what I do because I enjoy educating my folks around what you have and what's the best way to, to get it protected because there's so much value in IP as you and I both know there's so much value in it. I was, I was in a meeting the other day and we were talking about the, the Bed Bath and Beyond acquisition by Overstock and, you know, they purchased Bed Bath and Beyond IP, their domain name, their social media handles, their customer list for $21.5 million. They didn't buy any inventory. They didn't buy anything else. They only bought their, their trademarks and all of their IP for 21, almost $22 million. And if that's not a great example of protecting your stuff and building a good brand, I don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, that's pennies. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it's pennies, but to your point, it's like, I think we, yeah, I'd be all right with 22 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah, overall, for sure. Yeah, overall, you build a good business. You know, it's like, man, you built something that somebody's willing to pay for, and then they're willing to pay seven, eight, nine figures for it. So that's kind of what most entrepreneurs are striving for. 
but but that IP is is really really important when when you're building your company. Okay, so in terms of from the IP perspective, in terms of having a business that's centered around IP, yeah, what are some of the things that you suggest that a person does? Do they need to get uh, an LLC that is in control of all of the IP, or can they, in, as in the individual, have control over that IP? Is one better than the other? I love that question. I love, love, love that question, man. So, so the first thing I always tell folks is to make sure you do your homework on the name that you want to trademark. Moses, it's the, it's one of the hardest things of my job is to get on a call with a client and tell them someone already has that name and they've already gone out and they've built a website, they bought inventory, uh, they've hired a coach, they have done you name it. I had a lady, man, she spent like almost $200,000 on stuff. And only to tell her that someone had already trademarked the name. And she, and I said, how did you search the name? She said, I Googled it. And I saw a few people using it, but they were doing something different. And I didn't think, I didn't know where else to search. So, so to answer the question, the first thing you should do is go to uspto.gov, uspto.gov. That's the United States, United States Patent and Trademark Office. And that's where we file patents and trademarks. But on that website, you'll be able to search the trademark name. You can do it for free. You'll search the name just to make sure that name is available. And I always tell folks, just because the, the domain name is available through GoDaddy, and just because TikTok and Instagram and all these other social platforms say that the name is ready or available, doesn't mean someone hasn't trademarked it, right? So the, the system we care about is uspto.com. And if it's in that system, then you may need to consider another name. So I would tell folks, especially my new entrepreneurs, to come up with three to five really strong names that resonate with you, your vision, your values, because it's a likelihood that some of those names are already taken in some version of it, right? And so to answer your question, I always tell folks to set the business up first. So get an LLC, which is probably the most standard. In certain circumstances, you may do a C corporation, but for the most part, you'll do an LLC. Um, and then you file your trademark and you ask a really good question. Should the, should the business own the trademark or should it be an individual name? My opinion, and I've seen other attorneys say otherwise, and I'll, I'll defend my, my opinion on this. And, and that is you should set the business up first and then you, the, the trademark should be owned by the LLC. And here's why. If you are sued, if you own that trademark in your name and you're sued personally and you lose, they can take that trademark, right? At least if it's in a business name, you're separating yourself from the business and you personally, that's the whole point of that. The other part is if you are, if you own the trademark in your individual name, but you're using it through your business, that's an issue because if you run into a trademark infringement case, your business can't really enforce it because they don't own it. Now there's a way to get around that. And this is why it's important to have really sophisticated lawyers is that 
you would have to license it to your business to use. And then you would have to give the business permission to enforce the rights around that license. Super complicated, but it's something that we do all the time. But it goes to the, the heart of your question. And that is, you really can just have a conversation with an attorney, such as myself or any other business lawyer or IP lawyer that has the specialty that you need as it relates to your industry and your space and have those really, really hard conversations. And I call it the what ifs, right? What if I get sued? What if someone alleges that, you know, I'm using their brand? What if, what if, what if, right? And we should be able to walk through those various scenarios to get to a really good place so that you feel confident about going to market with your product or your service. Okay, so make sure that A, you start an LLC, or some sort of corporation. Business structure. Yeah. Yeah. And then you make sure that all of your, your, your content, your IP, intellectual property is under the name of that LLC. So in that way, if you get sued personally, you are, that content is then protected and the possibility of it being taken away, it, there's just that wall of the business there to protect That's you from right. there. That's right. And, and there are instances, Moses, where I have clients where we have what is called a trademark holding company, where we'll just put all of your IP in a separate LLC that's different from your, what we call as your operating business. So you may operate your podcast out of one LLC, but the podcast trademark is probably sitting in another LLC, right? And so... It can get very, very sophisticated because at the end of the day, it's all about risk mitigation. You know, that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to mitigate any risk. So if somebody feels the podcast or any other thing that got you got going on, they can't get to your core assets, right? So, so it's very, very important that, that we, we all think through that. Okay. So. I can have an LLC that is one name, but the products of that LLC, I can trademark and they can be other names. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You definitely can do that. And then you could also have what, what is known as DBA. So doing business as, or in some state, they call them assumed names or fictitious names. Um, and those are names that are different from your legal name. So for example, if my LLC is Bobby Robinson, but I do business as the influencer attorney, right? And if I trademark the influencer attorney, that's absolutely fine. However, if someone tries to sue the influencer attorney, because it's a DBA, DBAs do not provide you with any liability protection. So they're actually going to be suing Bobby Robinson LLC, right? And so... It's one of those things because a lot of people ask me like, hey, I have a DBA. What should I do with it? Should I set it up as a separate LLC or should I keep it as a DBA, right? And it really just depends on what you're doing with the DBA, right? And if it's something super risky, then of course I'm going to say set it up separately, right? But if it's something you're doing casually, not a whole lot of risk to it, then it may be okay. So it's kind of like Amazon owning Whole Foods, but until someone sues Whole Foods, they won't be suing Amazon, but they'll just be suing Whole Foods because Amazon 
has trademarked Whole Foods in, in your example? Yeah, so so Whole Foods, so I'm assuming with that whole transaction, Amazon, they probably set up a holding company to which that it's separate from Amazon or they set up a holding company to hold what Whole Foods as a subsidiary company. And so that's probably how they structured it, which is pretty common uh, when you acquire a new company because you can just set it up as a separate entity, right? Because again, you don't want someone to sue Whole Foods and then they also get access to Amazon's assets, right? And I'm sure vice versa. But you do want to create as many walls of protection. A lot of companies also just don't want their IP in the same operating business, right? It's just not good practice. Because if anybody can get a hold of your IP, they pretty much got a hold of your, your company, right? And uh, as you said, IP, that, that falls under those, those five different categories. As you said, it's trademark, copyright, name, and image, and likeness. Um, and then you have, what are the other two? Trade secrets, patents. Trade secrets and patents. Okay. And yeah. so that, that all is under the heading of IP, of those five things. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that, that, that's interesting in terms of that way. So it's better to, again, start an LLC and then put your IP, all of that stuff into that LLC. And then that's just to protect you. If anything happens to you, then your stuff won't be harmed in that way. And then if you do anything else under the LLC, make sure that you trademark it. So then it's protected by the LLC, correct? That's right. That's right. And you may, again, depending on how much IP you have, we may just set up a separate entity just to hold the IP, right? Yeah. So you have your operating company as your client facing business. So if I'm providing legal services, that's my operating business. And then my holding company is separate from my operating business. So if, if anybody sued my law firm, they couldn't get my IP, right? So, so that, that's really, really important. Especially now, of course, clients that have, and again, all of this is as a lawyer, it's just educational purposes, right? Talk to Absolutely. your own lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Talk to your own lawyers who have legal advice, but generally most new companies are going to own their first trademark will probably be in the business name until they really start growing and getting busy and adding more trademarks. And, you know, as you add more and you're, you're kind of getting into seven, eight, 10 figures, then we start having the conversation about, Hey, let's assign that trademark that you, your first trademark, when you were doing $50,000, you know, now you're doing $50 million and you own 20 trademarks. Now let's assign those to a holding company. And we'll just license it back to your original company so you can keep using them, right? And so that's that's generally how that would work. Okay, I got it. So what you want to do is as many walls as protection as possible. So then if you, something happens to you, again, everything else is protected and can't be touched that's directly. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then for those, as you get, 
even more sophisticated, you you need to obviously talk to maybe like a, an estate planning attorney or something of that nature. And your interest in the business, or if you have an LLC, you as the owner is referred to as a member. And so you have membership units or interests. If you have a C corporation, you're referred to as an owner, as a shareholder. So you have shares and shareholder interests. But typically, as you grow and you get bigger, you want to be able to set up a trust and have your trust on your interests in the company, right? And not you individually. So as you, as you grow and you get super, super sophisticated, you talk to your, you, you have your estate plan, your estate plan includes your trust. So for example, if you ever wanted to sell some of your interests or you wanted to sell the company, you get a hundred million dollars. It's not going to come to you. It's going to go to your trust and then you divide it up how you want to divide it up. But your trust could certainly own the interest that you have in the business. And again, that's the conversation you have with your business lawyer, your trust attorney, your estate planning attorney. And we all tend to work together on doing what's in the best interest of the, of the business and the entrepreneur. And so putting it in the, in the trust, does that also come with any tax benefits as well? Yeah, they, they, they are. And typically I stay in my lane on the tax side of it. But, but there are a sound that so typically we'll have that conversation in addition to the estate planning attorney with your CPA and financial advisor to just to see kind of what's the most advantageous avenue for you, especially on what we call triggering events. Triggering events are like, for example, the sale of the company that can be an event or, or, an, or a taxable event that kind of creates the tax liability. So we want to be able to try to figure out what that could look like very early on and then you plan for it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, in terms of, we talked about AI, we talked about how you were able to take that, that legal business that you created and able to, to, to yeah. sell some of that. Um, do you have any advice for anyone who wants to break into an industry like the legal profession that, that that's as, as old as the nation itself? One of those industries, you feel as if innovation is very, very slow to, to take on in doing what you did. Do you have any advice from that in terms of either with starting or just to make sure that you have the right idea or you're solving the right problem. Any tips you can offer us? Yeah, man, the, you, you kind of started going through my list already. The, the first is thinking about your why, like why, why do you want to sort of move into a space? You know, I often try to discourage young lawyers, not discourage, I don't want to use that term, but I, I want to just kind of make sure they're doing it for the right reasons. Right. Cause I think society has a racist level of perception that all lawyers are, are wealthy and that's not the case, right? Uh, you know, if you're in public service, like a public defender or a state prosecutor or any type of nonprofit attorney, they don't make very much money. That That's a passion, that's passion work, you know? And so you gotta know like, hey, I'm very, I'm very passionate about education. And so I wanna become 
you know, an educational attorney, or I'm, I'm passionate about seniors and I want to do senior law, right? You may not make a million dollars. You, you may be lucky if you make a hundred thousand dollars, right? So, so, so really understand what your why is. And that, that's true even in entrepreneurship, right? Like some of us have gotten into entrepreneurship because we got let go of our job and we can't find another job and we, but we know we have these skills and we're, we're doing it, but we're really not into it. We're just doing it just to keep the lights on, right? So just to understand that. And then if, if you're good with your why to your point, then make sure you're solving a problem that's scalable, right? Solve a problem that's scalable. When we, when I started the IntelliDoc, you know, we knew that that was a multi-billion dollar industry that we could easily scale into, right? Sometimes the problem is not significant enough and that means sales aren't going to be there. You're going to be frustrated. You know, people aren't willing to pay for it because the pain point isn't great. The problem isn't, isn't there. And then the other part too is, is really just thinking about your, the totality of your framework, like what systems are you going to use? What structure are you going to use? Do you understand your IP? Did, did you set the right foundation? You know, do you have mentors? Do you have advisors? You know, and even thinking about like, what's your leadership style? You know, how am I going to lead as an entrepreneur? So there's a lot of pieces to, to that. But you just got to do a gut check. And once you make that decision, go all in. Yeah. And one of the, the things that I like that you said is, is that go into like more the high level stuff, not just the, the day to day. Oh, I need to go get this client, sit down with them, talk about this and then work on this project for them. But think about it like big picture thinking. And I think for a lot of people, especially is that a lot of the the stuff out there that delves into thinking from thinking from above looking at the the larger picture of it all it you usually i i tend to find i found that i was listening to a lot of that kind of stuff just starting out and so for me at that time yeah. i knew that i should i should be listening to this but i should also be working on on right. doing all the Little Try. stuff, but then I realized, you know, just, you know, 15 minutes, I can listen to this in 15 minutes and just sit around <laughs> doing nothing, just listen to yeah. this and just yeah. put it in my brain. So then that way, whenever the situation does arise and what the person's talking about in terms of if you have an employee, if you're dealing with someone over here, a partner or something, you can then be able to execute in this way instead of having to be in the moment have no idea what to do and then yeah. just be floundering around and you're expecting one thing when actually something else will occur. And so just having that, even just running in the back of your, your brain then allows mm -hmm. you to, whenever that does arrive, you are, you're ready for it, you're prepared. Good, good comment there because, um, Again, I'm super, super unique. I know, you know, the stats don't support what we see on, on, on the gram. As they say, everybody is not driving in Lambos and eating fancy dinners on, on beaches and all that jazz. I think I saw a statistic or something like the average business makes like $42,000. I think that number is even lower uh, for minority owned businesses. 
And I have been able to grow six, seven, and eight-figure businesses for the past 15 years. Some I've taken L's. I had a staffing company that did not do well. <laughs> a legal staffing company that did not do well. It didn't do well because I was just, I was stretched too thin and I was trying to do too much. And I, it just, that's a story for another day, but that's another learning example. And so to your point, I coach service-based companies because that's what I know. I don't do product-based businesses, but I, I'm a mentor for helping people get to their first hundred thousand. And one of the things I'll tell you is that's a different level of focus than for my clients that I'm helping to get to their first moment, right? The, the information is it's different, but I also like what you said in that you have to have the foresight to know, I want to be a million dollar business someday. And these are the, the type of issues. Like I tell my clients, if you want to do a million dollar business, where's your org chart? Like, I want to see an org chart of what your organization would look like at 50 million, 25 million, 5 million. You know, who's the CEO? Just because you founded it doesn't mean that you have to be the CEO. And so it's one of those things of, of the shift in terms of what does the organization look like at various iterations and who do you need to be in order to kind of live up to that moment, right? Because I always tell folks, I don't want to be a CEO of a hundred million dollar company. I think me, I, I'm comfortable at 50 and I'd rather hire someone else to take it beyond that, right? And I'm okay with that. But guess what? Because people tend to confuse titles with ownership. Titles and ownership. CEO is just a title. I'd rather have ownership and equity and let someone else get a salary, but I still own and control the company, right? And so, so I think once we start to have those mental shifts and we think about the organization at different phases, it kind of puts everything into perspective. But I really like what you said. You'd have to think ahead. If you know you want a million dollar business, you want a $10 million business, then you got to figure out what that is and just kind of work backwards, right? And so, yeah, I, I love, I love that perspective. Yeah. But then also it's, you need to know everything on your level where you are right now as Absolutely. well. I, I, I agree with that. And but to your point, you won't know everything, right? I mean, you, there's just certain things that you just got, I always joke with people. It's not a joke. It's true. Like my friends that are doctors and lawyers. They don't call it the practice of law for, for a reason. We're still practicing. Like it, it, it's, it's just what it is. And so the same is true with entrepreneurs. You're, you're still learning on the job, you know, and just because you were successful over there doesn't mean you're going to be successful over here. So it's just one of those things, man, where you're just, you're always learning. You're always learning, but you got to be obsessed with your space though. But I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, thank you, Bobby. This has been a, a wonderful conversation in terms of yeah. getting into talking about IP and, and AI and a bunch of other two word, two letter acronyms. So I have one more question for you. And yeah. that is if you had the ability to send a worldwide text, what would your message be? 
My message would be, you are enough. So why, why would your message you be, you are enough? Um, I think just because of the world we live in, man, that there's, there's so much comparison and, you know, people thinking they're not good enough to be a lawyer, be a podcast host, be whatever they want to be. And it's just like, we're all uniquely gifted and situated to be successful and whatever thing we desire to pursue. But sometimes we don't, we don't believe in ourselves, right? We don't, you know, I, you know, I, we have people that see more in us than we see in ourselves, right? And so that would just be my, my mode of encouragement, man. I'm always about encouraging my friends and people in my circle that, man, you got this. You're more than enough to do that thing. Whatever that is you want to do, go do that. And, and let the chips fall where they may. So that would be my message to the world. Hmm. It's a wonderful message and definitely necessary for the times. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely, man. Yeah. Well, where can all the listeners go to uh, listen to listen to you more or learn more about you? Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. So I am Bobby Robinson. So I am B-O-B-B-Y Robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N is where you can follow me. And I typically post most of my educational content there. Uh, if I'm hosting a training or a live or anything of that nature, a master class, you'll always likely find it there. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, but most of my content is, is typically on, on Instagram. Yeah. Well, wonderful, Bobby. Thank you so much for your time and this wonderful conversation. Now, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Gold Podcast, stories of black dreamers and doers. Please go ahead and subscribe and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the podcast right now so then it can reach more people. If you want to get in touch with me personally, go ahead and send me an email at blackgoldpod at gmail.com. If you want to talk about the show or if you want to talk about how to create your own podcast where you can find people and talk with them about the topic of your interest. If you want to go further into doing that, make sure to go to www.blackgoldpod.com and go ahead and scroll all the way down to the bottom and get yourself a copy of the Side Gig Podcast Guide. It's a guide that I put together for you to start a quality podcast on a low budget. So go ahead and do those things, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening.